You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I said, that will never happen to me. I'm here because I did too much cocaine. I am not ever going to be the person that you are. Two years later, I'm in the street collecting cans for crack money. You know, because I never stopped thinking how I was thinking, never stopped doing what I was doing, and my story became that guy's. My guest today is named Tommy Figlioli, and he is the author of That's What Junkies Do, a real, raw, and honest memoir about his struggles with addiction. Welcome to the show, Tommy. All right, sure, man. My name is Tommy uh, Figlioli. I'm from New York City. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I moved out to Staten Island about six years ago. and. I recently published my memoir about my life's my life struggle with alcoholism and addiction. That's really it, man. I grew up in a, I grew up in a rough neighborhood when I was a kid. A lot of uh, not a rough neighborhood. It was a good neighborhood, but there was a lot of guys in the street, you know, criminals, mafia guys that we looked up to. And I always wanted to be like them. And unfortunately, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't a tough kid. And from a young age, I was always doing things to fit in. You know, and. Um, my book actually my book actually starts in the name of the book is that's what junkies do and a lot of pe- people said you know why are you putting that word junkie in the title of your book i don't like the word personally but the title came from a conversation i had with one of my friends in 2003 and by then my addiction was in full blown you know full blown addiction i had an 800 milligram a day oxycontin habit on top of drinking and cocaine and whatever else i could shove into myself and I, you know, I stole from everybody. And the guy asked me, I stole a hundred dollars from him. And he found out and he asked me, he said, you know, Tommy, where's my money? Where's my money? I said, no, I didn't take your money. You know, I swear to God, you're my friend. Why would I do that to you? And he looked at me and he said, Tommy, why would you do that to me? He said, for the last three years, you've been stealing from your family. You've been stealing from your mother, your aunt. He goes, those people raised you. He goes, you do it because you're a junkie. And that's what junkies do. And that conversation stuck in my head for now it's 18 years later, and that's where the title of my book came from. And you know, in the book, I say I wish it would have ended there, but it doesn't end there. You know, it gets far worse before it ever got better. And then that chapter ends with me looking back over my life, and then we come to my childhood, and I just look at some of the things that you know led me on the path that I went on. And the first thing was when I was a, a young kid, you know, to try to fit in with a group of guys. I walked outside and they were playing wiffle ball, you know, and they had the yellow wiffle ball bat and they used to stuff it with uh, newspaper and then wrap it in black tape to make it heavy. And they handed me the bat and they told me to go hit a kid in the head with it. You know, and I went and I hit this kid in the head. And when I went back, you know, they all uh, high fiving me and then they accepted me and it made me feel good until I went home a half hour later and I felt terrible for what I did, you know, because he was a good kid and he didn't deserve what happened to him. About an hour later, the kid's father comes to my house and uh, screaming at my mother, like, why did your son do this to my kid? Your son's a rotten kid, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And my mother just looked at me and said, wait till your father gets home. And my father was one of these guys that I looked up to. You know, my father was a street guy. He was a tough guy. He was a half a criminal. And I looked up to that. So when he comes home, you know, he gets me in the car. He takes me up to to the avenue. And uh, he asked me, he said, Tom, why did you hit this kid in the head with a bat. And my seven, eight year old brain was like, I can't, I can't tell him the truth. You know, I can't tell him that these guys made me do it. 
you know, he'll look at me and think my son's a little punk. So I looked at my father straight in the face and I said, he pushed me and he made fun of mommy. My father looked at me, shook his, shook his head, took me to a restaurant, walked me into the back. All his friends were standing there. And I turned around and I looked at my father and he was smiling and he was proud of what I did because he would have done that because that's the type of guy he was. And he was proud that his son stood up for his mother, stood up for himself and hit this kid that was a lot bigger than him. So me thinking I was going to get in trouble turned out to me getting praise for what I did and then started a lifelong process of me always changing, always doing things to fit in. And then if I ever got caught, I would just lie and get myself out of it. And that's basically just how my life went from that day on, you know, and, um, other than that, my, my childhood was normal. You know, I played baseball, I played hockey and, um, about eight years after that happened, my parents split up and I was looking for that male role model, you know, and my father wasn't that guy. And I lived with my cousin who was a lot older than me. He wasn't that guy because he was doing his own thing. So I gravitated towards the street and those guys that were sitting on a porch playing wiffle ball were now on the corners drinking beers and you know smoking weed and hanging out with girls and people that I wanted to hang out with. And in my head, I thought that if I wanted to hang out with these people, I had to do what they were doing. And I started drinking and I never stopped, you know, and that's what started the whole thing. You know, I saw these guys doing something. I wanted to do it. I put that drink in me and it made me feel able to do it. You know, I talk a lot about in the book and even when I, you know, if I speak at a meeting or if I just share, I talk a lot about anxiety and fear and just that insecurity that I had as a kid. But I didn't know I had that when I was a kid until I started drinking. You know, I always knew I didn't feel right. But when I had that first drink, I noticed I was able to talk to a girl that I was afraid to talk to the day before. I was able to feel comfortable around people that I was uncomfortable around the day before. And I liked that feeling and I always wanted that feeling. So once that first drink went in me, that's all I wanted to do. And you know, I always say it didn't get out of control until years later when drugs came into the picture. But about a month after I started drinking, I quit playing hockey. It just got in the way of me hanging out and drinking. You know, and at 16, 17 years old, I'm hanging out in bars. I'm hanging out in schoolyards. I'm smoking weed. I'm smoking cigarettes. I'm drinking. And that's, you know, it's not normal for a kid to be doing. I got a scholarship to college and I wound up going away. And um, thank God I did because a lot of my friends got in trouble while I was away. But while I was away, I was getting into my own sort of trouble. You know, my first semester in college, I almost got thrown out. And I was an honest student my whole life. And my first semester in college, I roomed the two guys I went to high school with. And as soon as our parents came up and, and they put us in the room, they shut the door and I started drinking that day and I never stopped. And my first semester, I was placed on academic probation and basically told, if you don't get your grades up, you're going to get thrown out of school. So the second semester, you know, I did enough to get my grades up. You know, I got, I lost my scholarship, but they gave me a grant to subsidize it. The crowning achievement in my first semester in college and my first year in college is that I pledged a fraternity and at their awards thing at the end of the semester, I won most likely to wind up in AA, you know, and it's something I wanted to do. Like I saw this award and I was like, I want to win that thing. I want to be the best drinker in this fraternity. And I 
set out to do it. And I won it. I won it that year. And I won it every year I was in school. And then two years after I graduated, they were still giving it to me, you know? So that's how college life went. And, um, it was just every night. It was every night, every day. And I always just say, everybody drinks like I do, but that wasn't the case. You know, I always found the people to drink like I drank. I would find a group on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, just to do what I wanted to do. And five years later, you know, I'm still in college. All my friends are graduating and I finally get out of college, but I was hanging out in this bar so much that the guy just gave me a job there. And instead of going back out into the real world and getting a job, I decided to stay in that town, live the college life without being in college. And I became a bartender and I had a beautiful apartment right off campus. And that's when things started to get out of control. I started doing some of the things my father did. Um, I started working for a bookie, a bookmaker in in Brooklyn. Um, I started taking bets and then I slowly started to get involved in in drugs. the girlfriend at the time left me because she didn't like some of the things I was doing. And this new group of people I was hanging out with, they were taking ecstasy. So I said, all right, let me try it. And I, you know, I took ecstasy and then I did ecstasy every day for six months. And then one night I went to get ecstasy and they didn't have it. And the kid gave me a tinfoil packet and he said, it's cocaine. And I looked at him and that was a line in my head. I said, it'll never cross. And about 10 minutes after that, I grabbed the foil packet. I went in the bathroom cut out a little line on the toilet tank, you know, ripped the line. And I never drank again without cocaine. And I was 23 years old. And now at 23, you know, I, I started selling cocaine and ecstasy to subsidize my habit. So now I'm a bartender who drinks too much. I'm a bookie who gambles too much. And I'm a drug dealer who's doing his whole supply. And long story short, you know, I wore my welcome out up there pretty quickly. And I decided to move back to, to Brooklyn with my family. I got a Wall Street job. And I said, as long as I stay away from the hard stuff, I'll be fine. You know, it was the cocaine that did me in. You know, it was the cocaine that had people intervening on me and had me stealing from people. As long as I just drink and smoke weed, I'll be fine. You know, and two weeks later, I asked my friend if he had cocaine. He said yes. And, it, you know, it was off to the races. And, uh, you know, by now, I'm starting to feel the effects, you know, the alcohol withdrawal, the cocaine, the anxiety from the cocaine. And I'm waking up every morning after drinking all night and doing about an eight ball every night. And and I can't get out of bed because I'm shaking and my heart's racing and I think I'm going to die. So I go to the emergency room and I lie to them and they tell me I'm fine. And then I go to my personal doctor and I lied to him. And with the information I gave him, he treats me by giving me benzos. You know, he says, if we feel like this, take an Ativan, take a Clonopin when you feel like this and you'll be okay because you have anxiety disorder. So now I found my solution. I would drink and do Coke every night. And then when I woke up in the morning and couldn't get out of bed, I would take an Ativan, I would take a Clonopin. 20 minutes later, I'd be fine. And I was able to go about my day. And that lasted for about two years. And then in February 2002, I wound up in a psych ward. And I lose my job. I wound up in a psych ward. And, um, and I don't know how I got there. You know, I'm in, my, I'm in my room. I'm crying. And a nurse comes in, knocks on the door and says to me, you know, there's a, there's a meeting down the hallway for, uh, you know, AA came, came up to, to share their experience, strength, and hope. 
And I said, thank you, man, but I'm not here for alcohol. I'm here for cocaine. You know, I didn't want to stop drinking. I never thought I had a problem drinking. You know, everything in my life revolved around it. I, you know, watching the football game, watching wrestling, playing softball, everything revolved around drinking. So I was not ready to give that up. And I said that. And she said, well, why don't you go and listen anyway? So I walked down the hall and I listened. And the man who spoke told the story about he was from Staten Island. And he talked about driving over the bridge into Brooklyn to buy crack. And he would spend all his money. So he'd have to collect cans to pay his way back over the bridge. And as soon as I heard that, I said, that will never happen to me. I'm here because I did too much cocaine. I am not ever going to be the person that you are. And I said that in so many words to him after that meeting was over. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, kid, if you keep thinking the way you're thinking, you're going to keep doing the things you're doing. And one day your story is going to be mine. And I said, thank you, sir. And I walked away from him. And for 10 days, I told those people in that place everything they needed to hear for me to get out. And the day I got out, I didn't know how to live my life. It was the first time in 10 years I hadn't had anything in my system. And when I went home, I looked in the mirror and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I sprinkled some 12-step pamphlets around the house for my mother to see. I called up my friend. I said, I'm home. Are we going to watch wrestling tonight? They said, yeah, come down. I went to the deli. I bought two 40 ounces, took a Tylenol with codeine, went to his house. And eight hours after I got out of psych ward for, for substance use, I, I'm in my friend's house drinking. Five days later, I'm at a house in Hunter Mountain, ski place up in upstate New York, and I'm in the bathroom doing cocaine. A month later, I take my first Oxycontin. I split it in half because I didn't want to take 80 milligrams because I thought that was too much. I didn't realize the time release was going to put it all in my system at once. So those 40 milligrams of Oxy hit me at once. And, uh, you know, I had taken Percocets before and I loved the way they made me feel. Oxycontin was a different animal, you know, and um, I got very sick that first night. I swore I would never do it again. A month later, I took another one. And then that one became 800 milligrams a day. And that led to me getting thrown out of my friend's house for stealing his money. And then progressively getting thrown out of everybody's house for stealing money. And then eventually my life became just myself and, and my disease to the point that I wanted to kill myself. And I went to my cousin's house in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, and there was a shotgun on the wall and I took it off the wall and I put it under my chin and prayed for the strength to pull the trigger because I didn't want to live anymore. I was 29 years old. No, I was 27 years old at the time. And I just didn't want to live anymore. You know, I was hurting everybody around me and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And I, and I didn't know how to stop. I didn't do it that night, obviously. And um, two years later, I'm in the street collecting cans for crack money. You know, because I never stopped thinking how I was thinking, never stopped doing what I was doing. And my story became that, guys. You know, and in 2005, I'm smoking crack. I'm sniffing two bundles of heroin a day. I'm drinking every day. And I broke. You know, I broke. I couldn't take it anymore. And, and I asked for help. And in 2005 was my first, um, my first attempt at recovery. You know, I went into a meeting. I raised my hand. And I said I needed help. And I got help. You know, I met so many great people 
who took me under their wing. You know, I was young at the time. I was 29 years old. And um, I met a lot of older men that I needed in my life. You know, I was always looking for that, that father figure, I guess, after my father left. And um, I found that. You know, I found that. And these men showed me how to live life. And I did. I started to live life the right way. And um, I got the job that I'm still on today. I got all the material things, the job, the girlfriend, the car, the money. I moved out of my mother's house. I had the beautiful apartment. And slowly but surely, I let that take me away from the things that, that got me there. And in 2008, I got hurt on the job. I went to the doctor. They prescribed me Vicodin. And, um, and I struggled with that. You know, and I remember them, they always told me, call somebody when you're struggling. And I picked up the phone and I called my friend and uh, that call didn't matter because by that time I was so far gone in my head mentally that whatever he said on that phone call, I wasn't listening. I was parked outside the pharmacy when I called him. So after the conversation was over, I went in, you know, I filled the script. And about two weeks later, I took one Vicodin, you know, one Vicodin in 2008. And it took me eight years to get back from that. You know, um, it didn't happen right away. You know, the, the insanity and the obsession, the obsession happened right away in another way. I took one Vicodin at about two o'clock in the afternoon and I drank a, a coffee soda with it for the caffeine. And I, I stayed at my watch for the next four hours until I could take another one. That second Vicodin I took, I said, I'm only going to take one, but I drank five coffee sodas so that the caffeine would make me hit, hit, make it hit me quicker because that's where the insanity was. I wanted to get high and I wanted it to hit me quicker. So already I'm trying to figure out ways to do it without really doing it. And about a month later, I'm up to like 40 pills a day. And um, yeah, I go back to the rooms in 2010. You know, I, I go on a maintenance program. I'm on Suboxone. And I was doing the right thing. I was trying to do it the right way. And I was coming down off of it. But I, I never really dealt with what was going on. You know, I never dealt with the reasons I relapsed in the first place. And uh, it was only a matter of time. You know, and I say in that one year, the only good thing that happened was I met my wife. And by the grace of God, she's still with me today, you know, six years later. But other than that, you know, I was just, I was an accident waiting to happen. And I hurt my foot in 2011. I started taking pills again. And that just, just led me on another four-year run of just insanity. And by the end of that, I'm taking upwards of 200 Xanax a week. I'm prescribed Clonopin. I'm prescribed Roxy's. I'm prescribed Suboxone. I'm buying scripts in the street for Valium, for Clonopin, for Xanax. I'm buying Roxy's in the street. I'm taking Adderall. I'm drinking bottles of NyQuil every day. I'm a disaster. And I used to look at my medicine cabinet and say, I'm never going to be able to stop doing this. I was on so many benzos that every time I tried to stop, you know, I would shake so uncontrollably and be so sick that I couldn't stop doing it. And I wasn't getting high anymore. I was doing this to survive. You know, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning without it. I couldn't go to work without it. I couldn't do anything without this, without these pills. And you know, in 2016, I just, uh, I broke again. You know, it's never this traumatic thing that happens to me. It's never some extenuating circumstance. I, I don't get arrested. You know, I don't get, I just break, you know, I go 
until I can't go anymore. I'm out of steam and I break. And in January 2016, I broke again. Then I, I was, uh, a, there was a blizzard. I didn't show up for work. And I, I shovel my, my fiance at the time. I shovel her out of her, the parking spot. And I called my dealer up and I said, I need 90 more Xanax. And he said, they'll be here when you get here. And um, I didn't go. I don't know what happened. Next thing I knew, I was sitting on my couch, phone in my hand, on the phone with a friend of mine who I had helped a few years earlier. He put me in contact with a counselor at work. A day later, I was in that counselor's office. A day after that, I was in treatment. And by the grace of God, I've been sober since. That was January 27, 2016. And, um, you know, life is good. Life is good today. Um, I'm blessed in so many ways. Um, again, I married that girl, that girl that stuck with me through those six years of, uh, of me being insane. My job is unbelievable. I wound up getting promoted at my job and I'm on the preparing to take a test for another promotion. Um, I couldn't get up. I couldn't get up in the morning, even make it to the place. And because of me being sober, I'm actually able to excel at what I do. I was able to write my story and publish this book that I'm so proud of. And just the feedback that I'm getting from it is unbelievable. And um, it's all thanks to, thanks to me finally making that decision to change my life and putting faith in a higher power that, that if I just trusted the process and put one foot in front of another, that I would be all right and good things would start to happen. That's really my story, man. That was fantastic, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I related on so many levels, man, from the beginning of your story where you talked about being a kid and not really feeling like you fit in. Like I related to that. I related to the struggles you had in college. You know, I went through something similar where I was on academic probation and I didn't end up finishing because, um, I kept using and just couldn't stay out of trouble. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us have similar stories, um, just like you were talking about with the guy that was talking about picking up cans. And if you continue down this path, you're going to end up in the same place as me. You know, while our stories may vary, the destination usually ends up in, in similar places. As far as the book goes, was that something that you had always planned on doing? Or did you just feel like you had that story on your heart and you had to share it? How, how did the book come about? I mean, ever since, ever since I started going to meetings in 2005, I, I always loved telling my story. You know, I, it, it's almost therapeutic for me and I, I like helping people. You know, I always felt that the feedback I got from my story was always good. So I, I always loved telling my story. I never thought about writing, but this most recent time when I went away, I came back and my sponsor, when, you know, he started taking me through the steps, he had made me write down all basically the story of my life and then all the ways that my life was unmanageable even before alcohol became involved and by the process of doing that i i started to write my story and it sparked it sparked something in me and um a couple of years later i actually read a book by this guy who, who lived in virginia i always just say who wants to read a story about you know this kid from brooklyn new york staten island who's going to read that story but I always enjoyed reading memoirs, especially addiction memoirs. And then I started reading memoirs written by regular people. And I read this guy's book and I was like, if, if this guy could do it, I could do it too. So I started writing the stories down 
And um, I started by writing them in my iPhone. Like I write them in my iPhone notepad, very, you know, unofficial. And I was working with a guy one day. And I said, do me a favor. I said, read this, tell me what you think. And he read it and he looked at me and he just looked at me and said, what the fuck are you doing hanging out with us? He goes, you have to pursue this. And that statement that that, that day gave me like the confidence to do it. And I actually, I thank him in my acknowledgments. And he'd since, he has since retired from my job. And I called him when the book came out and thanked him. And we had a really long conversation. And I wound up sending him a, a copy with this whole nice letter I wrote inside for him. Because people don't realize the impact that they make on your life by simple words that they say to you. And that guy had a tremendous impact. Without his words, I don't know if this book is, I don't know if this book is out. So the more I wrote, the more passionate I became about it. It took me a long time. It took me about a little over three years to write it, but I was never in a rush. You know, it was never about money. It was just about getting my story out there to help. And if it only helps one person, it only helps one person. That was the reason for it. And the feedback I've been getting from it has been more than I could have ever imagined. And uh, it's just an unbelievable feeling. And uh, I'm just really, really proud of it. Really proud of it. That is absolutely incredible, man. And again, the name of the book is That's What Junkies Do. If our listeners are interested in getting a copy of the book, where can they find that? And do you have a website or social media or anywhere that we can follow along in your journey? Uh, yeah, I'm on social media. I'm at tfiggy, T-F-I-G-G-Y 0918 on Instagram. I'm on Tommy Figs on Facebook. The book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and any ebook carrier. Um, and I also have a Linktree account. If you go to my Instagram, it's in my bio and, um, that's where they can get it. Awesome, man. And I'll be sure to include some links in the show notes. So if the listeners are interested in picking up a copy of the book, it's going to be right there in the show notes. They can click on that link and, uh, they can find that. And, uh, I'll be sure to add that to my list as well. You know, I, I have a, an ever growing list of recovery books from guests in various places, um, so I'll be sure to add that one to my list as well, man. Tommy, thank you again for coming on the show today, man. I really do appreciate you coming on, sharing part of your story and, and just letting us know about your book and that recovery is possible. Awesome, man. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing part of your story with us. Uh, if you guys heard something in there that you related to or you felt that connection, I'd really encourage you to pick up a copy of That's What Junkies Do. Thanks again, Tommy. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.